This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning on this first Sunday in October. Thank you for joining us on Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Obesity, a chronic disease that's increasing in prevalence around the globe and is a major contributor to poor health. Screening for obesity can identify high-risk patients who may not otherwise receive counseling about health risks, lifestyle changes, obesity treatment options, and risk factor reduction. Today, we're very pleased to welcome Dr. Lee Kaplan, who is an MD and PhD, and he's a gastroenterologist. I love that. He's the director of the Obesity, Metabolism, and Nutrition Institute, as well as the founding director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Weight Center and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, as well as the recent President of the Obesity Society. With more than 200 medical and scientific papers, he's also the Director of the Nutrition and Obesity Research Center at Harvard, which is sponsored by the NIH. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for sharing this great information today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Lee, let's start with your definition of obesity. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that, that um, the World Health Organization has settled on a definition, which I think is a good one, which is excess body fat that poses a risk to health. And I want to emphasize fat because you could, of course, be heavier, but, but it's, it's about fat. And you say that because one of the metrics that we use for epidemiology, just for reference purposes, is the BMI. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But somebody might have weight that's muscular and not necessarily fat. So it's good for our listeners to hear that distinction. Yeah, indeed. And I think that it's, it's, it's important to recognize that it's the having of the fat. It's not the getting of the fat. We'll talk about that a little more later. Um, there are people who are muscular and, have, and are a little bit over the cutoffs for BMI uh, and don't have obesity. But I think it's important, and we can, we can talk about it in more detail later, but it, it's important to recognize that BMI is a marker. It's not a definition. The definition of obesity, again, is excess fat. And you can measure fat directly with CAT scans, MRIs, all kinds of ways. So, so we don't need to use a surrogate marker 
when we're evaluating patients. And I know we had a great discussion the other day, and you said that really one of the barriers to helping people with obesity is the way it's perceived. There are other conditions that are caused by the environment, like peanut allergies or rheumatoid arthritis, but nobody debates that idea. Tell us a little bit about your thinking there, if you would. Well, yeah, a lot of times uh, people have felt so strongly that this is a, a problem that is brought on by people who have obesity and that they, with appropriate willpower and dedication, could reverse it. Both of those things, I think, are incorrect. People don't bring it upon themselves. And even if they, however they get it, uh, it's exceedingly difficult from sheer willpower or sheer work on the part of the individual to fix the problem. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But I, I think that, that that's the number one issue. What makes obesity a disease is that it reflects the body's not functioning correctly. And all diseases reflect the body not functioning correctly in one way or another. And it's an inside the body problem. Now, it may be caused by the outside, and you mentioned allergies, for example. Allergies are caused by perhaps too clean an environment during, during early development. But the, even though it's caused by the outside, the problems on the inside, it's the immune system that's not working correctly, leading to peanut allergies or some other kind of autoimmune disease. The same thing with obesity. It may be caused by changes in our modern environment. I think that largely it is. But the end result of those changes are that the body stops functioning correctly and wants to have too much fat and maintains too much fat. Mm -hmm. And you talked about examples the other day of instances during a person's life when their status changes, say a woman is pregnant or breastfeeding, how does the amount of fat that the body wants to hold on to, how does that change? Well, it changes all the time. So when you're born, you have a lot of baby fat. And then in a very short period of time, over months, you, you start to lose that baby fat. You don't go on a diet, a baby doesn't go on a diet. Mm -hmm. It's a natural evol evolutionary or developmental process whereby the baby fat is lost and then the baby grows into a child. And, and as they go through puberty, if you're a girl, you tend to gain some fat. And if, you go, if you're a boy, you tend to lose some fat. These things happen naturally. And they not only happen in us, they happen in other mammals. And they do so without our intervention. Women who become pregnant gain body fat. And they maintain that extra body fat during the pregnancy. It grows. And then even after the, the, the baby is delivered, they maintain excess body fat to allow them to have enough uh, storage to breastfeed. When the breastfeeding period is over, again, women tend to lose the body fat, lose weight, and they do so without going on a diet. So all of these processes are ones that are naturally occurring. Fat levels go up and down. Fat moves around at different times of our lives. That happens without our intervention. That said, obesity is the one situation where it happens inappropriately, and that's what makes it a disease. And when, it's, when you have an inappropriately elevated level of fat to a certain point when it, when it poses a risk to health, that is obesity. It's not the gaining of weight. We gain weight and lose weight all throughout our lives. It is the having too much fat at an inappropriate time. Mm -hmm. Very well said. And we're seeing a rise in obesity over the past, well, more than 50 years. We have about two minutes to talk about that. Tell me about your theory as to why we've seen that rise, if you would. Well, it's, it comes from the, the modern environment. 
If you look at, at the United States, obesity is more common in rural areas. If you look at China or India, it's more common in urban areas. But what, what is common to all parts of the world where obesity is epidemic uh, is that as we modernize society, as we go through the Industrial Revolution 150 years ago and we modernize to this with an increased speed and increased stress, changes in food, changes in, in labor-saving devices, all of that modernization leads to obesity as a side effect. And unfortunately, the whole world has become modernized at this point. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about moderniza modernization, I think that instant communication has sort of condition people to want everything yesterday. I can order it on Amazon. It'll be on my doorstep tomorrow. I need food. I'm just going to go buy it. It's pre prepared. Do you think that's part of it, that it's the type of foods that we're eating as opposed to carrots right out of the ground? We're eating processed food, and that might, is that what you mean by modernization as well, the types of food we're eating well, to a degree? It turns out that, yes, I think you're absolutely right. It turns out that there are more than 100 different types of obesity, and that's because the system that, that defines how we deal with energy and fat and storage of fat is very complex. And there are lots of different ways that it can go wrong. There are lots of different participants in this. And because of that, what you see is that different people will respond to differently. So some people, when they eat a processed food diet, are going to get heavy. Other people, when they're sleep deprived, will get heavy. Other people, when they're stressed. And so we can't know in any individual what the cause is, but it's probably a combination of all of these things and many more. And you said there might be one of several drugs, up to 50 drugs that can affect uh, the amount of fat that you retain as well. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Lee Kaplan from Harvard. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Our subject today is obesity, the disease of obesity. We were talking to Dr. Lee Kaplan from Harvard. Lee, what percentage of the U.S. population would you guess would be having uh, pre-obesity or obesity, and why do you think it's more prevalent in certain parts of the country? Well, you know, we don't really know why it's more prevalent. We think it's because certain populations uh, are more genetically predisposed, but we also think that uh, uh, people's lifestyles are different in different parts of the country. And for people who are susceptible to developing obesity when they're on, say, a highly processed food diet or a high fat or a high carbohydrate diet, uh, those diets are more common in certain parts of the country than others. Mm. Remember, however, I, I often have patients who tell me that, that, well, of course I have obesity because look what I eat, you know, whether they eat a lot of uh, carbohydrate with a lot of oil on the carbohydrate or what have you. Their grandparents probably ate the same food but didn't have obesity. So you have to remember it's not just one thing. It's not just the food. It's the food plus the, the stress of modern life. Plus, I mean, we used to ha have a situation where we would communicate with others over a course of weeks. We'd write a letter. The letter would be sent. It would get there. They would think about it, write a return. The whole thing might take three weeks round trip. 
Today, it takes three minutes, and the volume of communication is a hundredfold more than it was two generations ago. That's a stress. We deal with it as human beings, but it's a stress on the system that we don't take into account. Some people are, are, have, have that as a cause of obesity. Other people who work the night shift have that as a cause of obesity. Some drugs cause obesity. So that's really what is, is making it so much more common today. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look at any person, the average person is spending, as you say, so much time with telecommunicating, that adds to sleep deprivation if you have to answer your personal and your work emails and, and texts and all that before you go to bed. Tell us how you yeah, think sleep I mean, deprivation, yeah. Sleep deprivation is another one, and there are so many things. You see, the modern environment is almost the perfect storm for creating obesity. There's nothing in the modern environment except for maybe people's uh, uh, purposeful attempt to try to combat the modern environment. But other than that, almost everything in the modern environment is promoting obesity. And so, so you're right about, uh, about the need to have all this communication. But just the fact that we have a 24-hour environment. It used to be that everybody went to sleep when, they, uh, when, when you know, the, the sun went down and the lights went off. Um, people often ask me, because everybody likes to blame somebody for obesity. And I say, yes. if you're going to blame somebody... Blame Thomas Edison. He invented the light bulb and he turned uh-huh. us into 24-hour creatures. We didn't used to be 24-hour creatures. And that may have as much to do with obesity as the food we eat or the stress we're under. Mm-hmm. So it must play with our hormones and our appetite and that sort of thing. If your diurnal variation of even adrenaline is affected because you're forcing yourself, instead of starting to hibernate at 10, 30, 11 at night, you're like, no, I'm good till 1 a.m. And I'm sure that all plays a role. So BMI the basal metabolic index, that's height in kilograms, or sorry, (laughs) that was a test. (laughs) Um, um, Weight in kilograms over height squared in meters. And it gives us a number and there are parameters, but as you say, that's not the be all end all. It's just a metric we use for epidemiology or the study of patterns of health issues. Tell us a little bit about your thinking on BMI because people love to lean on that and it's not the you know, the uh, perfect uh, measure. Yeah, it's it's not perfect. It's not bad either. It's just, it's somewhere in between. And BMI was invented as a a marker back in the 19th century, almost uh, 200 years ago. And, and, uh, And it was invented as a way of estimating the amount of fat somebody has, but it's just an estimate. Even if we measured fat perfectly, some people who have, have, have excess fat will get diabetes and some won't. Some will have arthritis and some won't. Some will have cancers and some won't. So even if we knew how to measure fat precisely, easily, it, it wouldn't be the perfect marker. There are other things that go into the complications of obesity than just how much fat you have. But the BMI is a, a good marker in that you can do two things with it. One is you can look at the whole population and see what's happening, what is obesity doing? And BMI is a good marker because all you need is the height and the weight, and that you can get in everybody. The second thing BMI is good for is if you've got somebody, let's say they have a BMI of 32, and you want to see how they're doing, you can monitor the BMI because once you've established their starting point, BMI is a very good way to follow it. It's directly proportional to weight. So I think a lot of the enthusiasm for BMI 30 years ago was that it wasn't weight. People didn't want to talk about weight, so BMI is is proportional to weight, so that was good. 
BMI is a still a good way to measure things on a population basis. It's a good way to follow individual patients after you establish it. What it's not good at is telling you how well you're going to do with your obesity. Mm-hmm. So I guess really the main concern is the big picture about how many other diseases are increased in risk because of pre-obesity or obesity. That's, I think, the focus here, don't you think? I think so. And I think that, that you start by saying that, that more than three quarters of the adult population in the United States have either pre-obesity or obesity. And pre-obesity, some people call it overweight, but it's more than overweight. It's excess body fat. And if you combine that with the fact that obesity either causes or worsens or accelerates the progression of more than 225 different diseases... And we only have a thousand diseases. So more than 225 of them are made more likely or made more severe by obesity. That's pretty bad. And then one more thing you have to consider is that obesity can get in the way of taking care of all the other diseases that are not related to obesity. For example, you, if you have obesity, you have excess fat. That means that certain drugs don't work as well. For diseases Mm -hmm. that have nothing to do with obesity, it means that certain x-rays are not as sensitive. It means that certain tests are not appropriate. So obesity basically affects every single other disease, either by interfering with its diagnosis and treatment or by causing it in the first place. And you bring up a good point because we are both gastroenterologists. We do procedures and we get a little nervous when we have a person who's obese and we have to do an endoscopy. Are they going to have difficulty breathing? Will they tolerate the anesthesia as well? And then again, when, you know, just to paint the picture for our listeners, it's a little bit harder to do an accurate rectal exam or to get that person lined up for a mammogram. I want to go back, Lee, when we talk about uh, increasing risk for multiple possible diseases, people know that it's more likely to cause diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, even sleep apnea. But I bet they're not familiar with the idea that it bumps the risk for multiple cancers. I, th- I remember I do a lot of lecturing about women's cancers, and after menopause and your ovaries start to go to sleep, women have a certain amount of androgen or man- male hormones, and the um, male hormone is... Uh, converted to estrogen in fatty tissue. So the more fat, the higher the estrogen level, and that's food for breast and uterine cancer, right? And maybe the microbiome affects the uh, risk for colorectal cancer. So if people knew that, um, I think that's important too. I had a guest on some weeks ago that we talked about infertility. Either partner, the male or female in the couple, fertility can be impaired if either of them uh, is in that category of pre-obesity or obesity, yes? Absolutely. And one rule of thumb, amongst those 225 or more diseases, uh, all of the reproductive tract diseases are cancers. Most of the GI and liver and pancreatic and gallbladder cancers and a few others are all related to obesity. So, for example, with breast cancer, if if you have obesity, you have twice the risk of breast cancer. And because mammograms are less sensitive and because physical self-examination is less sensitive because of all that extra fat tissue, what it means is that if you get breast cancer and you have obesity, you're twice as likely to have metastatic or spreading of the disease before the diagnosis is made. When you put all this together, the burden of disease has increased the cost of healthcare and the risk of, of, of disease 
at least twofold for people with obesity versus people without obesity. Mm -hmm. And one one issue that you and I both see quite a bit, because liver disease is part of gastroenterology and hepatology care, is fatty liver. Fat can infiltrate the liver, uh, I guess if you lose weight too quickly as well, but fat in the liver has taken the first place away from hep C. Hepatitis C is no longer the number one cause for liver transplant. Fatty liver is. We're going to do a show on that next week, in fact. Um, and and as you say, too, just psychologically, depression, anxiety, it's, it's much harder if you're carrying all that extra weight, yes? It is. I mean, and psychological diseases, uh, the, most, the most common psychological diseases caused by obesity are depression and anxiety. But even, even eating disorders, it's the third most common. And remember, most of the time, it's obesity that causes eating disorders, not eating disorders that cause obesity. That's also, by the way, true of thyroid uh, disease. Uh, Obesity causes hypothyroidism because it causes antibodies to be made to the thyroid, not the other way around. I mean, a few cases, but most of the time, not the other way around. So I think it's important to recognize that at the end of the day, whatever the cause, some of it's genetics, some of it's environmental, some of it is, is food, some of it is stress, whatever it is, the final pathway is the body's not working correctly and it, the body wants too much fat. We don't want too much fat, but the body does and it's very difficult to fight against our body. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back to continue our conversation about obesity. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Our guest today is Dr. Lee Kaplan from Harvard, and we're talking about obesity. Lee, I had, after my GI fellowship, a year of clinical nutrition at Memorial in New York and and learned such important information. Of course, Sloan Kettering, the hospital Memorial, has 20 floors of patients with cancer who either can't eat or they don't want to eat because of their chemo, et cetera. And we did a lot of um, IV nutrition and tube feedings, but we did spend a good deal of time studying fad diets. I'd love to hear your take on that. But the other point is, One of the hardest things to track, I would guess you'd agree, is a diary of eating because we we as clinicians or researchers know of the Hawthorne effect. If you're being watched, you're going to behave a little differently. So if you ask somebody to write down everything they eat in a day, they might not eat as they might not have the same spontaneous habits they would if they said, oh, I'll just have a second candy bar. They might not want to write that down. So they might just eat one candy bar. Do you know what I mean? versus uh, being able to do what they want freely. And then if you say, well, just write it down every three days, and then they're going to forget. So studying dietary habits, I think, is one of the hardest things to follow. Would you agree with that? I do, although I don't think it, you need to follow it very much, and I don't follow them very much, because what happens is the when you have obesity, this is different from, from somebody who's trying to uh, become an elite athlete or is trying to, to, to optimize. We always talk here in Boston about Tom Brady, not here anymore because he has such an elaborate uh, program for his physical conditioning and his, and his nutritional conditioning. But that's trying to become an elite, uh, have an elite metabolism. For people with obesity, we don't have to get into that level of detail. What we need to know is that obesity beco- comes because the body wants to have obesity. And 
you're not going to fix it. This is the one thing that most people don't understand. You are not going to fix it by eating fewer calories. Because what happens is if you eat fewer calories, the body thinks you just went through an illness. What happens when you get uh, the flu? You might lose five pounds. The first thing that happens when that flu is over is you're going to gain that five pounds back because your mm -hmm. body has a very, very important and powerful mechanism to regain it. If you have obesity, it's because your body is set wrong, but it still will get there. It's sort of like somebody turns the thermostat in your house up to 90. Well, they can do that, but you're not going to fix it merely by opening the windows. If you have a strong enough boiler, you open the windows, it's still going to get to be 90 because the body, in this case, the, thermos, the, the thermostat system wants it to be 90. So what we have to do is we have to spend less time focusing on, on the details of what people eat and find out the general type of what they eat. Do they eat fast foods? Do they eat highly processed foods? Do they eat in normal, regular patterns, or do they eat in irregular patterns, which disrupt circadian rhythms? What I try to do when I'm taking a history, and I think it's very important to take a broad history, not just diet, is I want to find out where can I intervene to help them solve the obesity problem. If they're eating a diet that is very homogeneous and is very processed, one of the first things I'm going to do is I'm going to try to change that. But I'm not going to tell them to eat less. Because if I change it and the body uses that change to improve itself, the body will want to eat less. What I often say is overeating doesn't cause obesity. Obesity causes overeating. What I mean by that is whatever causes the obesity, whether it's stress or the diet you're eating or something else, your body will get there by overeating. Therefore, if you want to fix it, what you don't tell people to undereat. You don't tell people to eat less. That'll fix it only for a few months. What you tell people to do is see if we can find the thing that'll fix it. So the first thing I do is if, they're, if they developed obesity at a time of great stress, financial stress, marital stress or something, decreasing stress is the focus on, of, my, of my therapy. If they have obesity when they took a job that worked the night shift, we see this in a lot of different uh, industries, then probably circadian rhythm disruption is what did it. And so therefore we want to fix that. So I don't focus so much on diet alone. I focus on all of these things that are known. A drug, if somebody went on a drug and gained 40 pounds, probably the drug is what's causing it. It has nothing to do with their diet. And so we ought to not put everything on the, on the burden of diet. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you say to a patient who says, I'm a little bit overweight, but everybody's overweight. Uh, I know you like to say fit and fat, not that we use the word fat, but as the expression, fit and fat is still not healthy. Well, I, I think that, that uh, fit and thin is the healthiest. If you are fit and have excess oh, fat, weight. Mm -hmm. you're going to be a little bit less healthy. And if you, have, uh, if you, if you have, are thin, but you are not fit, you don't exercise at all, you're also going to be less healthy. And if you have obesity and you're not exercising, then you're probably the least healthy of all. But, but this isn't a competition. This is a disease. Uh, we don't say your Crohn's disease is worse than your neighbor's Crohn's disease, and so therefore you ought to be treated first. What we say is both of you have Crohn's disease. Let's take care of both of you in, in, in whatever way you need it. You might need different therapies, but we, we take care of it. Same thing would be true with cancer. So what I would say is, Let's not make it a competition who's better than who, who's healthier than who. Let's just simply try to fix the problem as mm -hmm. best we can. And the way we do that is look for the opportunities, as I said, 
treat those opportunities, meaning encourage people to change their lifestyle. But when that doesn't work, we're very, very quick to move to medications because we recognize, just like for every other disease, if lifestyle doesn't work, we've got to do something more serious. And we finally have good medications. It's taken 50 years before we had good medications, but we mm -hmm. finally have them now. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about medications and any other procedures, but you made a good point the other day. Where a patient chooses to go often determines their treatment. If they see a dietitian, they'll be given a diet to follow. If they see a bariatric surgeon, it's likely that, that they'll, they'll be asked to consider surgery, etc. Let's talk about the medicines that are available and then maybe talk about the procedures and, and how you look at the whole picture and help a person decide what path to take. So, so imagine this. I, I, your point is very well taken. Imagine that you, your primary care doctor or somebody diagnoses you as having colon cancer. Okay? And the way you deal with your colon cancer is you talk to your friends and you say to your friends, I, I have colon cancer. Well, this is terrible. What should I do? And your friends say, well, you know, I know this good surgeon. He takes out colon cancer. And I know, and, but another friend says, I know these good drugs. I hear there's good drugs. Another person says, if you, eat, if you take aspirin and, you, and calcium, that makes the colon cancer go away. Well, instead of going to a comprehensive cancer center where they'll look at you and evaluate you and say, this is by, based on good evidence, this is the best treatment for you. Where you started to look for your colon cancer therapy is where you ended up. If you go to, to, a, to a, uh, a, a somebody who's focused on diet, then you're going to get diet for your colon cancer and you're, somebody else with colon cancer is going to get surgery. It's crazy. It's a crazy way of doing it. That's exactly how obesity is treated. If you happen to go to a bariatric surgeon, you're more likely to get surgery. If you go to, to me, you're more likely to get medical therapy. If you go to uh, a dietitian, you're going to get counseling. If you go to a psychologist, you're going to get a different kind of counseling. What we need in obesity if we're serious about it, and we need to be serious about it, it's too expensive, it's too deadly for mm -hmm. us not to be. We need to have those comprehensive approaches, just like we have for heart disease, like we have for cancer, that we have for GI disease. That's the future. And so that if you go to a provider, you go to a healthcare provider, you'll get the same quality of care no matter where you start. Mm -hmm. And we know that some of the procedures that were done in the past were done with surgery, an open incision in the abdomen and uh, reduce the size of the stomach because to decrease uh, a person's intake or decrease their appetite, you can either, quote unquote, shrink the stomach or make the stomach smaller so they feel full more quickly, or you can remove part of the small intestine. And I always tell my patients, that's your sponge. And if Part of it's not working because it's inflamed or part of it's removed. There's less absorption uh, sponge area and you're going to absorb fewer calories. So tell us a little bit, if you would, about now it's done through a laparoscope. What kind of procedures are available if somebody goes in that direction? Well, so first of all, I, I just want to make a small correction. That's how the operations you described perfectly, how the operations were developed. But it turns out they don't work that way. They work like super strong drugs. So, for example, the first operation was, was made in 1954, and it purposely caused malabsorption. But you know what the surprise was? In 1957, a paper came out, as early as 1957, that said people ate less. They voluntarily ate less. There was no restriction. There was no small pouch. Because what the surgery does in every case 
is it makes the body, it's like, it's like a drug. It makes the body want to weigh less. It makes the body want to have less fat. Now, surgery in 1954 was very dangerous. An average of 11% of people who got these operations died. Today, mm. that number is down to 0.15%, and, and bariatric surgery has the same risk of death, anyway, as getting your gallbladder out. So, so we've seen a dramatic improvement. The operations are still effective. They're still like super strong drugs, but they're much safer than they were. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Lee Kaplan. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. And in our final segment on obesity, we talked a little bit about procedures that are now done through the laparoscope, which is much safer in general. One of the things I meant to ask you, Lee, was uh, the intragastric balloon. That doesn't really involve surgery. It involves a scope, inserting a balloon that makes the stomach feel more full, and that can be temporary. Do you ever combine that with medications? I want to talk about the medications that are available. Do you ever do the balloon yeah, for a little we, bit? We don't, mm-hmm. we don't uh, use the balloon very much in our, in our center. It's not covered by insurance, uh, and uh, its effects are always going to be short-term because mm-hmm. it has to come out. Mm-hmm. It, it, when you combine it with drugs, you can easily just use the drugs because once the balloon comes out, the, any effect that you have from the balloon is going to mm-hmm. be lost over a few months. I think what we, what, where the excitement is right now is these newer medications. Like surgery, medications were not as safe as they needed to be in decades past. But we're, not, we're beyond that now. And, and with uh, the application of modern technology to develop drugs, better drugs, much more effective. We have a drug, the new one this year, that's just come out, which is twice as good as any other drug that's ever come out. And the average weight loss is, is 16%. Hmm. And over the next three or four years, there are going to be several drugs in that category or even better than that that are going to be coming out. So I think what we can... And they're, and they're very safe. They've been tested by and, and reviewed by the FDA uh, aggressively and ambitiously, and they're very good. So the question then comes is, what's their role? Well, I still would start with lifestyle. But when lifestyle doesn't do the job, we've got, we've got to do something better because hundreds of thousands of people in this country are dying every year because of complications of obesity. <laughs> and I think uh, you raise a good point about the combination. Uh, we need more and more obesity centers, people that look and work as a team to address these issues. Um, is there a website that you would send uh, our listeners to read about treatment options and therapies that are available? Uh, yes, I would say two. One is called the Obesity Action Coalition website, which is obesityaction.org. And the other one is the Obesity Society, which is a professional organization of people working in this area, and that's obesity. I remember, again, as a nutrition fellow, that if somebody's listening and they say, I can beat this, I'm just, I want to lose weight for my wedding or whatever goal somebody has in mind. And if you lose weight too quickly, A, you're not secreting as much um, certain uh, chemicals that deal with digestion and you're more likely to form gallstones if you go below I think it's 11 or 1200 calories a day. Plus your body thinks it's on a deserted island. 
if you eat too little, your body's going to retain what fat it can, yes? So people who lose weight too precipitously can actually add fat to their liver in an ironic way. So life is a balance. Life is a balance. And I would say that the most important thing is to see if we can fix the problem in the body. Eating less is good in the short term. It'll get you to that wedding that you described, but it won't keep you there. Exactly. You need to treat the disease. Lifestyle. Dr. Lee Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us today. We learned great information. And as you always say, advocate for yourself and do your best to find a professional who has expertise in the topic of obesity. Thank you. You're a real champion. I call this segment, Do the Right Thing. COVID, for more than a year, we've all been on edge. Will you or a loved one become infected, lose your job or home? More separation from elderly family and from friends? Fear, anxiety, even anger. Negativity is contagious. Well, here's a woman who's making positivity contagious. Last week, I was shopping at Appink Supermarket. I like self-checkout, especially during COVID. Well, a carton of eggs had a barcode that just wouldn't scan. Each staff member I approached was busy with other customers. Then came the sunshine. A staff member came and said, hello, dear, how can I help you today? I told her about the eggs and said there must be some baby chicks in there who don't want to get scrambled. We both shared a laugh and walked away a little happier from the pleasant encounter. Minutes later, I was at the car and heard, miss, miss, you forgot something. I had left a little can of fruit on the counter, and this dear woman leaped into action and ran through the parking lot with the missing treasure. I thanked her profusely, not because she found the dollar item, but because she took the time to do something nice, something very nice. We chatted a bit, and I told her she made my day. She made the effort to be kind. So many other encounters today are impersonal. Is all this technology making us robotic? Is that progress? I learned that her name is Pam, who said, if I can put a smile on someone's face, it makes them feel better and makes me feel better. Her grandmother and mother instilled her with the words of the golden rule, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Later, I asked Nate, the assistant manager, for permission to share her story on air. He said Pam is loved by everyone and often tells younger employees to learn from her exceptional work ethic and considerate nature. Pam is a glowing example of leadership. She zips from cash register to customer service to shopping carts, even empties trash at the entrance. She says, I won't ask my team to do what I won't do. You might think Pam has been a staple there for years. Instead, Pam has worked for several years as the ticket agent at the Ardmore Station for SEPTA Regional Rail Cars. With COVID and fewer commuters, she was laid off. Relieved to find work at the Acme in Wynwood, one day she learned they were closing in a few months. With prayer and a show of hard work, she landed a spot at the nearby Bryn Mawr Acme. Pam finds her strength from God. Her Catholic school days at St. Maria Goretti taught her the power of prayer and value of discipline. She often wondered if she'd find a full-time job. One day she went out to line up shopping carts and saw the answer. Across the street, a giant rainbow in the sky over our Mother of Good Counsel Church, and she thanked God for the confirmation. In fact, she was rehired by SEPTA. Now she works from 5.45 to noon each weekday and 4 to 10 p.m. at Acme. Pam is the perfect example of the power of positive. She's kind and respectful and says, you never know what's going on in the other person's life. 
I've always worked hard, so if I have $10 and someone else is hurting, I'll give them five. Friends, I'll say this. On a day when I was preoccupied with worry, Pam put things in perspective and made me feel a whole lot better. Pam is always striving to do the right thing. Maybe that's because her name is Pam Wright. We salute you, Pam Wright. You're a real champion. Thanks for listening today and every Sunday. Hear all of our shows again on yourradiodoctor.com. Send a story about a champion in your world to info at yourradiodoctor.com. We thank our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and appreciate the support from Rothman Orthopedics and Recovery Centers of America, all helping bring this important information every week. If you'd like to partner with us in the show, contact info at yourradiodoctor.com. Ladies, come to Pink Plus at Jefferson. Get two or three cancer screenings in one visit. A mammogram, gynecology exam, and a visit about colon cancer screening. Call 215-503-1631. 215-503-1631. Now enjoy some of the best medicine you can find on the planet, the sounds of Sinatra. This is Dr. Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor, wishing you a wonderful week and reminding you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.